0: Well, as I, I mentioned, Rachel's engagement to, to Jordan, uh, Warhurst, Jordan back there in the back, he walks in the, there. He, look at him fist pumping back there. <laughs> Unbelievable. You did well, sir. You did very well. She is way above your pay grade. But I should also note that Jordan Harris, who was sitting right next to me, or standing, she wasn't sitting, she was standing right next to me, will be married this time next week to our very own Scotty Chapman. So there's a lot of love around here at Cornerstone, just in case you were wondering, just, uh, you may be sitting next to someone you're married to in the days to come, who knows what's going to happen. We... um, We want to do it the right way when we get married and and move into life and pursue the Lord in a sanctified way uh, through the course of our marriage. We don't want to do what Abram and Sarai do here in Genesis chapter 16. So Lord, spare us from this as we approach this text of Scripture, but asking the Lord to lead us in His wisdom and in His uh, grace, to the truth that He would have us to behold, rich as it is from this glorious passage of Scripture. So let's look together. Genesis chapter 16, beginning in verse 1 and extending to the end of the chapter. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over and against all his kinsmen. So she she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Ber laharoi. It lies between Kadesh and Berid. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we need your help as always when we look into the pages of Scripture. This is a living book. And this living book must get inside of us. And the only way that it can get inside of us is not through human orchestration or machination. It can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. We come in His power. We come seeking Him to do His work. To take this truth and to change our hearts with it. And that the testimony of our time having set in this word together would be that we've met with the living God and we are forevermore changed. So Lord, hear the heart's cry of your people now and meet us by your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I had a friend some years ago now who said that he always felt he was most susceptible to sin when he was doing really well. I think that's probably true for a good number of us here in this room. That before a pride, for, the, for a fall goes the pride, as it were. The pride that is there that leads to that fall. And I think in very similar fashion we see that with Abram in this passage. If you've been with us in this series, you know that in Genesis chapter 15, we just had a high watermark in the life of Abram. God has just given his covenant to Abram. He has wedded himself to Abram, though Abram is going to be faithless and foolish over and over and over again. God says, I'm going to fulfill my promises regardless of whether you're faithful or not. And he gives to Abram the yoking of his love through a beautiful, though mysterious, covenant ceremony. And then at the minute as we close Genesis chapter 15 at this high watermark of God's promises to Abram, we have this. Genesis chapter 16, and we see Abram and Sarai tumble into faithlessness. Now as we look at this passage together, I want you to, to, to as it were, get in the, 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 the shoes of Abram and Sarai a little bit. And I want you to go through the decision-making process that particularly Sarai starts and as Abram joins with her in over the course of Genesis 16 so that you can maybe understand how it is they thought the way that they thought, why they ended up where it is that they ended up, and why they needed so desperately God to intervene, which we see he does at the end of this passage. And so to capture all of that, the arc of Genesis chapter 16 together, I want to look at this passage in three ways with you. I want to look first at the problem. Just very simply, the problem that sits on the surface of the text. And then I want you to look secondly with me at the solution that's worse than the problem. I want you to look secondly at the solution that's worse than the problem. And then I want you to look thirdly at the solution that solves all problems. The solution that solves all problems. Now I want to start with the problem. It's real obvious. Look there at verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. There's the problem. We enter Genesis chapter 16, where we enter Genesis 15, where we enter Genesis 14, where we enter Genesis 13, and we're more than a decade away from the original promises that were given to Abram by this point. You are going to have a son, Abram. He is going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. You're going to have more offspring than the stars in the sky. Your inheritance is beyond description. Abram has no son as he enters Genesis chapter 16. But what we may not have noticed throughout the course of this is that this problem has multiple dimensions to it. It's one problem. It's no child. But the problem has multiple dimensions. Especially if you decide to get under as it were. The world in which Abram and Sarai are actually dwelling in. In the ancient Near East. Let me let me point this out. There's a problem of no child. But there's a social dimension that makes this problem particularly painful. Some of you have probably read Nathaniel Hawthorne's classic novels, The Scarlet Letter. You know the story of that lead character who conceives a child through an affair and then has to live under the terrible cloud of shame and guilt because of it. That scarlet letter that she has emblazoned upon her breast in that novel is the letter A for adultery. Well, there was a different scarlet letter in Genesis chapter 16. It's the letter B. It's the letter for barrenness. Do You see, the value of a woman in the ancient Near East was her ability to bring forth, to bear children. It was how you were approved of. It was how you were accepted. It was how your, your value or your stock maintained itself as a woman living in the ancient Near East. You can feel the pain of it when you read verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Notice the phrase of that. It's not that she's just pained by not having a child, which may be the human reality for a wife and want to be mother in the context of this passage, but the scourge of not being able to give your husband a child, for there to be no inheritance, for you to be barren, This is an incredible weight that Sarai has been under now for over a decade as they've lived in the land of Canaan. And the social dimension and the pressure of it and the pain of it is mounting by the moment. But there's more than just the social dimension. There's the physical dimension to this problem. We're told in verse 16 of the passage, right at the very end of the chapter, Abram is how old? 86 years old. At the point that this text is articulating this moment in history. Now, if you do the math and you you go forward to Genesis 17 or you go back to Genesis 12 where there are other references to Abram's age, we know by the next chapter Abram is 100 years old and Sarai is 99. And that's let me just pause for a minute to say that's really important to remember in your Bible reading that you turn a page but you might have turned 20 years. So just keep that in mind each time you're reading through the narrative. If you go, hey, God just spoke to them. Why are they having this problem like in the tomorrow, you know, like the next day? But the reality is it's, it's a lot of years sometimes between these chapters. So if Abram was 100 years old in the next chapter and we're, we're told that, that, that Sarai was, is 99 at that point, you just back it up a little bit. And by this point, we're looking at the fact that Sarai is, is around 75 years old. Oh, no, you know, she's no spring chicken, okay? She's getting close to Medicare and, you know, Social Security. And she's, she's taking a little off the top by this point. Even by patriarchal standards, she's beginning to get on up there. The flower is fading, so to speak, if she's going to have children. And you can imagine, in light of the social dimension of shame, now the physical clock is ticking, that the pressure for Sarah is getting... Unbearable, But I would, I would actually argue probably that the third dimension is maybe the biggest pressure point of all. It's the spiritual associated with what must be a deep emotional pressure that she is under. God has promised her husband a child. The future of the redemption of God is based upon the birth of this child. But where does the weight of that promise sit on Sarai? The weight, the mantle, if you will, of that promise, the reality of it coming to fruition, sits on Sarai. So year after year, she has waited for God's promise to come true. Let me just, let me, let me just, I'm not going to go too far down this passage, so don't get worried. Each time she and Abram enjoyed marital relations, she likely went, will this be the time? Will this be the moment? Ten years go by. Ten years go by. Some of you in this room know the pain of the reality of infertility. You, You know the struggle of month after month waiting and hoping and wishing. And years have turned into decades. The pain of this under the social dimensions, the physical realities, and now the spiritual promise of God must be unbelievable for Sarai. And so her patience runs out. We enter Genesis chapter 16, and her faith is running thin. She decides that she's going to get creative. She's taking matters into her own hands. And that leads us into point two. Not only do we have a problem in this text, we have a solution that's worse than the problem. A solution that's worse than the problem. Now, as I say it that way, uh, you may have instances in your own heart and life where as you look back over your life, there are times where you've tried to fix things. And when you've tried to fix things, you've done a great job of making it worse. It's usually what happens when I do any home repairs at my house. You know, the leaky faucet is just one drop, but let me get a hold of it. It'll be a steady stream by the time I'm working on it, you know, because it just gets worse every time I touch it. In fact, as I was thinking about this, my, my, my mind harkened back to a haunting moment when I was building a science project in sixth grade. It was entitled "Dying Things Naturally. That's dying like the dye in your shirt. And I was using natural means by which to dye various claws, and I was comparing the claws. And it was—I mean—it was definitely going to be an A. That was the main thing. It just needed to be an A. I needed to get a good grade on this thing. It was definitely an A. And I'm putting—I'm gluing these little pieces on this sheet of paper. And as I glue them, I'd not put too—not put enough, and it would fall down. You know, the piece you're trying to glue. And then you'd put in it be too much, and then it would be running. And then you would try to rub it off, and then you tear the sheet or whatever you do. And I just thought every time I try to work on this, it just gets better. All my solutions only increase the problem. The same thing is happening in the context of this passage. Is that Sarai comes in the midst of this passage with a plan, a scheme. She says to Abram, I want you to go sleep with my servant Hagar. Maybe then I will obtain a child by her. Now, for most of us, I mean, we're 21st century folks. We're, we're kind of scandalized by this suggestion we think she's lost it. She's really lost it. I mean, she's, she's gone bonkers. I mean, she's absolutely lost it. To encourage her husband to go sleep with her servant in order to produce a child, this, this, just, this is beyond the scope or the pale of how it is that we would think. But I want you to get a little bit into the, both the ancient Near Eastern mind, but also how Sarai may have had her own feet on the ground thinking about this moment. Up until this point... God has spoken only directly to Abram. Up until this moment, God has only spoken directly to Abram. Now that's going to change in the next chapter for good reason because of what we see here in Genesis chapter 16. And all that Sarai knows is that Abram has been promised a child. She does not know, technically speaking, whether she will be the mother of that child. That has not, in any of the promises specifically, been spelled out. Now, it will be spelled out. God will make it very clear in Genesis chapter 17 as we turn to it next week. But you can imagine her overthinking the situation and beginning to go, okay, we've been trying this for a really long time. It's not working. Could could it have been? Is there wiggle room in the promise? Is there any fine print regarding how this is supposed to go? Is it possible that she could have overthought this situation and realize that now she has a grand opportunity having come out of Egypt with a servant. Her name is Hagar, and in some way the curse of Egypt is kind of following them here through the midst of the passage. And here she says, I think of Hagar as my opportunity to be able to be a part of the attaining of the promise for a son. That's exactly how she thought about it. Now, that would have been how many would have thought about it in the ancient Near East. Hagar being Sarai's personal property. Let's just get that straight. She's a bondservant here. She's a possession, likely a gift from Pharaoh when she and Abram were escorted to the door in Egypt. You remember that from a few chapters ago. What that means is that everything that is Hagar's is Sarai's. Hagar has nothing of her own. Notice the language of the text. Go into my servant Hagar that I might obtain children by her. I might obtain children by her. She sees Hagar as the portal through which this promise can be accomplished. Now, it's it's, it's important to understand that this was common social convention at the time. If a wife could not produce an heir for her husband, it would not be unusual That over a period of time, a concubine, a bondservant, would be given in order to produce the heir. We'll see this later as it comes up in the text of Genesis. And there are many ancient documents and examples that we could pull from in the ancient Near East to see that this is not an isolated incident. But with that said, I think there are many reasons for which we can say, That this decision by Sarai and Abram's compliance with it has gone dreadfully wrong. Let me give you just three reasons why. The, The first is this. They chose social mores over divine morality. They chose social mores over divine morality. Now you'll remember mores is customs. Or traditions, something that was acceptable in their culture that you could do. But as you look at the pages of Scripture and you go back all the way to the founding of marriage in Genesis chapter 2, is there any doubt that marriage was made monogamous? For a husband and a wife to be covenanted together forever and never should the twain be separated. What the Lord has put together, let no man put asunder. We say that at the end of our wedding ceremonies for that very purpose. To say this is a covenant that you are to keep together for all of your life. And when we look at the pages of scripture, do we not? When polygamy shows up, always see the wheels come off. It doesn't matter if it's in the situation with David or in Solomon, or, or, I mean, we could go through a litany of examples to realize that this is not the way that it ought to be. But they chose the mores of the time over the morality that God has scripted in His Word. But I want you to see a second thing. Not only did they choose the social mores over divine morality, they also chose pragmatism over principle, pragmatism over principle. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that the way in which Sarai was thinking was primarily not along the lines of whether this was the right thing to do. She was asking the question primarily is, will this work? Will it accomplish what it is that we want to accomplish? She was in this way a very good North American As most of us walk through life and think through life, what is it that's going to work? What's going to make the money? What's going to to gain the end? By any means, we'll be willing to cut corners. We'll be willing to take bypass meadow. Whatever it is that we're willing to do in order to get to the prescribed end. And in this case, Sarah has for a long time operated on principle, and where has it got her? Nowhere. And she's gotten to a place where she's in pain, Nothing seems to be coming forth. And now the question moves from what is right to how can we just get this done? How can we just get this done? Let's move beyond this. She has chosen, in the context of this passage, pragmatism over principle. But I want you to see beyond the mores and the morality and beyond the pragmatism And the principle is that they have chosen together in the midst of this passage, man over God. They have chosen man over God. You see, those other two are just symptoms of really the deeper issue that's at work here. Behind all of these decisions, there's confidence in their ability more than there is confidence in God. There's confidence in their ability more than there's confidence in God. Think about it. How did they get here? Through Sarai's wisdom. What is the plan to accomplish the promise through Abram and Hagar's strength of resource? The focus of the entire text is on how we're going to bring about the promises of God, not in the resting of God and how He will bring out His own promises in His own way. Do you see, that is one of the biggest challenges that many of us face. The challenge that we introduced our service with is it's not just God's promise, but it's God's promise in God's way. It's not just the end that would justify the means. It's the means that God also prescribes to get to the end of which he's prescribed. You know, it's fascinating, isn't it, in the midst of this text where you think of, of man over God. One of the, the ways in which it's displayed so so evidently is through Abram's complicitness in the context of this text. You see that in verse 2. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, Women, ladies, this is a miracle at one level. It's a miracle because you're witnessing on this page a husband listening to his wife. This is not something husbands are known for. Let me get personal. It's not something this husband is known for. Very well. It takes me a while to, to listen. And what's interesting is it's one of the few times that a husband should have never listened to his wife is, of course, the moment that the husband listens to his wife. It's remarkable in the midst of the text, somewhat ironic here in the midst of the text. And it reminds us or should remind you. I trust it does in many regards to another time that a husband listened to his wife <laughs> in the text of scripture. Actually we've already talked about it earlier in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. In fact the parallels between Genesis 16 and Genesis 3 are striking. Let me just note a few for you. Verse 3. Hagar took, Sarai took Hagar. Genesis 3, 6, Eve took the fruit. Verse 3, Sarai gave Hagar to Abram. Genesis 3, 6, Eve gave the fruit to Adam. And in both cases, the men, abdicating their responsibility to lead, willingly go along with the sinful suggestion of their wives. It is a comedy of Errors, except that no one is laughing about it. It's not funny at any level. Now, if you are still, though I doubt there are many of you out there, still a few of you unconvinced that what Sarah did was wrong here, certainly you can see that the fruit that it produced, the relation or turmoil that came from it, is evidence of the sinfulness of the plan. I want you to see verse 4. Hagar's contempt. Notice first Hagar's contempt. As soon as Hagar learns that she has conceived, we're told that she looks at Sarai, her mistress, with contempt. I want you to just picture this. For all of her life with Sarai, Hagar has been under Sarai in every sense of the term. She is Sarai's possession. She's her personal property coming out of of Egypt. And now... For this one moment, Hagar is successful in just the way that Sarai is not. And Hagar takes her moment of success and she gets on her high horse. And she looks out across the way at Sarai down her nose. And she puts her in her place. And she exercises a sense of arrogance and a sense of pride. And of course, Sarai loves this. Not at all. We see in the context, verse 5, that Sarai begins with her anger and her hurt and her resentment. She begins to push all of this off on on Abram. Now that should should remind you of of something again from Genesis chapter 3. Notice what she says in verse 5. May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Hagar looks at Sarai with contempt, but then Sarai blame shifts everything to Abram. Now, let's just give a little love to Abram for a second here as the husband. I feel for him just a little, just a little bit, tiny, tiny little bit. Here, Here she is, angry that he, with Hagar, has conceived a son. Now, I'd be tempted as the husband, I I mean, some husbands maybe would be tempted in this way, in this moment, to explain to Sarai that this was her idea that she had come up with and that he was merely following orders in the midst of this. He just listened to his wife and did whatever it is that she asked him to do. And then all of a sudden, it seems a a few verses later, it's all his fault. Now, I don't know what your marriage is like or if you have any situations in your marriage where occasionally it may seem there's misunderstandings or blame shifts or challenges with regards to getting on the same page but I think that you can see in the context of this that Sarai's looking for someone who will be the scapegoat for the responsibility but Abram doesn't come off any better I mean of course he was a fool for following the advice first of all but then notice verse 6 how he responds this is loving Abram behold Your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Here we see again the beautiful example of passivity. Passivity. A moment where Abram could stand up and begin to do what a, a godly husband ought to do. But instead, what does he do? He pushes it all back in Sarai's direction. Now, let, if we get, again, in his mind just a little bit. Now, hey, now let me get this straight, Sarah. You told me you wanted me to do this in order to produce a child. We did this. We produced a child. And now that we've produced a child, it's all my fault that we, that we did that. And so now you, now you want God to judge me for it. And I'm just going to say, hey, I'm tapping out of this discussion. I, don't, I, I seem to be doing everything wrong when I'm doing just what you told me to do. And so I don't really know what to do anymore. So I'm just going to say to you, she's your servant. Just do with her whatever it is you want to do. And of course she does. We're told in the text that again, Sarai takes it all into her own hands. And in verse 6, we're told that she treats Hagar harshly. that uh, You ought not hear a, a childlike scolding. In that word, so now, now, um, Hagar, we have we have we have made a boo-boo. Um, that is not the dialogue of the text. That term, harshly, is a term that will show up later in the book of Exodus for the way in which the masters of Egypt treated the slaves who were Israelites. It, it's more akin to abuse. It's why the text relates to us that she treated her harshly and she fled. From her as, as if to protect herself based upon the response of Sarai. Now, what a mess. What a mess is this situation. And so it's why this final section, verses 7 to 16 in the text, is here. Because it doesn't want to leave us, and I think appropriately so, not just with the problem or the solution that's worse than the problem, but it wants to point us towards the solution that actually solves all problems. By the time we get to verse 7 is the very first time that we actually see the presence of God on the page of Genesis 16. Verse 7 is when God enters the scene. And when God enters the scene, we begin to experience a divine intervention. It's at this point that things begin to improve. A path through the mess of the situation begins to appear. Notice in verse 7, the angel of the Lord arrives. The whole situation begins to turn better. He meets with Hagar in the wilderness by the spring. He tells her what to expect regarding the birth of her son Ishmael. What kind of man he will become and how through him a great nation of people is going to come. I mean, it looks, it's a great promise. In fact, I would, and just to, just, just to set this passage apart in a, in a really special way, this language of angel of the Lord, it's not, it's not merely this is an important angel or a, 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 good, a really good, confident, helpful angel that, that God says. The angel of the Lord is a reference to God's own presence. This is a theophany. God is showing up to Hagar. And he's coming in the form of an angelic form and he's giving to Hagar covenantal promises. Promises that he's going to be faithful to based upon her affliction that she's gone through through Abram and and Sarai. Now, this is critical because Hagar is the only woman that we find in the whole of the Old Testament that God speaks covenantal promises to in this way. That's a remarkable thing. This is the only time that we have these kinds of promises. Promises of a nation, promises of a lineage, promise of a multitude. The only time is right here in Genesis 16. It's very, very significant. God is coming through and he is saying, I'm going to intervene in this situation. I want you to know, it looks dire right now, but I have heard your affliction. That's his language of verse 13. I have heard your affliction and I am extending to you covenant promises. Now God is faithful to his promises. Maybe you... Maybe you know the unfolding of Ishmael's line. But as you look through the pages of Genesis, you know that... Just like will happen to Isaac, who will be born in a few chapters from now, there will be 12 sons, which Ishmael will have. There will be 12 tribal leaders, just mirroring the 12 sons of of Isaac and the 12 tribes. They will grow into significant clan nations that will be nomadic, as he describes in this passage. They'll wonder. They'll be individualistic. They'll constantly be goading against the established nations. But they will become a significant nation. In fact, if you look over the lineage of history, and many of you probably know this, the nation and the ethnic and the people group who arise directly out of the line of Ishmael is the Arab people in the Middle East. A long lineage. And, and you m- might notice that on your, your TV screen over the years, the, the, the Jewish people and the Arab people have not always gotten along, shall we say. Well, I just want to remind you that that goes back a long way to Genesis chapter 16, to the birth of Ishmael, and later to Isaac, and we'll see a later separation. These these two kingdoms, as it were, coming from the lineage of, of Abram are already prophesied here in the context of this passage. And so we see lots happening in terms of history that we can't go into this morning, but a significant Blessing is being poured out here on Hagar in the midst of her affliction. Now, this passage doesn't solve this conundrum for us because we have a people who are now going to be born through the lineage of Abram that are not the chosen people, coming from Ishmael and the lineage to follow. And there will be a few chapters still before we get to the birth of Isaac and the chosen people of Israel will come forth from it the question maybe in the back of your mind is, is there any way that the two sons of Abram will ever be reconciled? Is there any way for Isaac and, and Ishmael to come back together? Is there any bridge by which a means could, could be made for these two to be, to be reconciled? Is there... Is there any kind of remaking and peace that can be brought to the mess that's now beginning to spawn from Genesis chapter 16? And the answer is yes in the pages of Scripture. But it won't come through Isaac, specifically in time, space, and history, nor Ishmael. It will come through Isaac's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose mission in this world, brothers and sisters in Christ, is to purchase for himself through his blood... A people from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. Now that word every is just as you're used to it. It means every. It means Arab, and it means Jew, and it even means North American citizen like you and me, many of us in this room. That there is a greater son of Isaac who's going to come, and you know what he's going to do when He comes, well, Abram can only see it through a glass darkly, but through the unfolding of redemptive history, here's what he does. He actually, in a very similar situation, intervenes into history through the incarnation, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he takes upon himself the entire mess of our situation. And from the mess that is made by all of our foolish decisions, mercy ushers forth. Mercy ushers forth. Now, here's what's remarkable. You often have to make a mess to really clean up the mess. You know, my mom used to tell me this all the time because I'd try to clean my closet and I'd just try to clean, you know, just the pieces you could see. And she'd say, no, 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 pull it all out. I want to know everything that's in there and then we got to put it all back in. I was like, well, that's going to be a worse mess. And she said, exactly we got to get all of it out in order to clean all of it up. And in the very real sins, when Jesus went to the cross, the bloody mess that the Lord Jesus Christ became on our behalf is the picture of unpacking all of our godlessness and all of our sin. That He entered that mess and became, as it were, a mess in order that He might remake us by the power of His mercy. Do you see? That's the story of Scripture. That's what he's doing even in the context of this passage. He's laying foundations here with Hagar for the greater mercy that he's going to usher forth in the days to come where in heaven one day we will stand before the throne of God singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty and next to us will be an Arab and a Jew. Praise be to God. That the division that is here in Genesis chapter 16 is a division that is only crossed by Jesus. The Jesus who enters our mess in order to extend to us his mercy. Now believer in Christ, I don't know what mess of a life you're in right now. But let's be honest, it's a mess. And you need his mercy. You need his mercy. More than maybe even you're willing to admit or own in this moment. Maybe you have no way out in your situation and you're not even sure how to deal with it. You look at the division that's here in the midst of the text of this scripture and you look at your own life. And maybe there has been a hopelessness that's pervaded it. I want you to see that God in the midst of this, He's entering your mess today through His Word. And He's entering the context of your life through the power of His Spirit. And He's saying to you, there is a mercy that brings you out of the mess. And it is his son, Jesus Christ. And he is calling upon you to call upon him because he cares for you. He's coming to find you, almost as it were, he found Hagar in the midst of the wilderness. And he's rooting out what's there, and he wants to instill within you a heart of faith that will follow Jesus all the days of your life. Believer in Christ, don't don't waste this moment of grace by setting your heart somewhere else or turning it back upon your own human effort. Right now, God is coming to you through His grace. And He wants to remake you. He wants you to experience that remaking. He wants you to bring it out of your own heart. And He wants you to give it to Him. And He wants you to hear that the Lord Jesus nailed that to the cross. And your sin is no more. Thanks be to God. And so today, as we sit in the presence of our God, and He is ready and willing to save, He is ready and willing to sanctify. In this moment, as the Lord pricks your heart, just begin to shoot up prayers to Him. Begin to be honest with him from your own heart. Begin to think of the ways in which you've wrecked havoc in your own home, in your own relationships, in your own workplace. And the spawn, as it were, of sin is just having its sway in your life. What what is it for you? Begin to ponder it and begin to ask the Lord, come find me in this wilderness. Hear me in the midst of my affliction. And then hear God respond to you. My son, Jesus Christ, takes upon your mess. Upon himself, and I extend to you my mercy for change. Come. That's the spirit of why this day is given to you. For you're not to carry that burden that you're carrying, it's only heavy enough for Christ to be the one to carry and not be crushed. So get out from under it and let his mercy be shown. In the midst of your mess until it is a mess no more by God's grace. Father in heaven, we ask for this. We ask for your intervention. We ask for your your presence. We ask you to hear our cry in the midst of affliction. And we ask you to come and answer in only the way that you can. Lord, there are undoubtedly those in this room who wouldn't even know how to cry and to call out. And so we would ask, Lord, that you would give them a voice and that you would give them the courage to know this is a place where they can cry and this is a place where mercy can be found. Lord, more mercy, more grace, we ask it, until all the mess that is our life is cleaned up. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing together.